0: The biggest obstacle right now to improving healthcare care is... <laughs> um, I don't think I can give you one. I, I think there's quite a few. This is Pulse Check. I'm Grace Scullion. <laughs> and I'm at the Milken Future of Health conference this week, where we asked attendees what they think the biggest obstacles are to improving health care. What we're experiencing with access...
1: That we don't have enough people trying to do it with us.
0: So disparities and addressing those need to be top of mind for every organization. Whether traditional healthcare, mental health, oral health, all of those things need to be focused on.
1: I would say the disjointed nature of all the systems we have.
0: The payment system.
1: The fact that a patient's medical record can't go f- digitally from one hospital to the other and still be useful. Lacking the ability to truly innovate is is a big obstacle for healthcare right now people's trust in innovation and science. So there's something we've seen with the COVID uh, pandemic that a lot of people didn't trust the vaccines and the treatments, so people's trust in science and the system is, is a big obstacle.
0: I think the big part is it's such a changing country, it's such a changing landscape, that underrepresented and underserved communities are still facing drastic gaps in terms of access and care. So I think until we really put funding and committed uh, time to work not just with community but within community that there's still going to continue to be gaps. Uh, The lack of coordination (laughs) across all the different entities and the fragmentation of healthcare. I can go on and on but maybe that gave you enough. I also caught up with Dr. Ofer Levy.
1: I'm a physician scientist and director of the Precision Vaccines Program at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School.
0: He's also a voting member of the FDA's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, which voted on whether the COVID-19 vaccines for adults and children should be made available. So I wanted to talk to you about the surge of RSV cases and the fact that there's not a vaccine for it yet. White House COVID response coordinator Ashish Jha said we might have an RSV vaccine by next fall. Do you agree with this prediction? And where are we in RSV vaccine development right now?
1: Well, it's a very interesting uh, area. Uh, Before COVID, it was the number one cause of infant hospitalization in these United States. So RSV is very well known to us as pediatricians. I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist after all. We have not had a vaccine. This traces back to the 1960s, where an effort to create a vaccine against this virus went wrong. They used a killed version of the virus, and unfortunately, uh, it actually caused worse disease and children who got infected, and even some deaths. This was in the 1960s. That set back the field of RSV vaccine research by 20 to 30 years. Big Pharma didn't want to touch the topic, too risky. We've now had a lot of progress in the realm of vaccinology, not just mRNA vaccines, other types of vaccines, including those that incorporate adjuvants, molecules that boost an immune response. And we now understand much better the type of protective response we want to induce in an infant to protect them from RSV. But they're also looking at immunization of pregnant mothers so that the mom can pass the antibody to the baby when it's born, and that's another approach to protect newborns from RSV. So there are a number of technologies. Out there, they're in clinical trials. We're starting to see some uh, positive results. So it is possible, as Dr. Ashish Jha says, it is possible uh, that within a year or so we may have an RSV vaccine that's poised for approval. As always, I will always uh, reserve my judgment until I see the data on the safety and efficacy. Those are always the two topics that the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee looks at. Vaccines you give to healthy people—they better be safe.
0: Got it. And so the most popular COVID vaccines are mRNA. Certainly in the United States. In the certainly, United States. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Could you get, tell us what you think or what it looks like the vaccine technology might be for these new RSV vaccines?
1: Well, again, there are different approaches. Some companies are looking at mRNA-based approaches for RSV vaccines. Some are looking at subunit vaccines, where you look at a piece of the virus, a protein, maybe add an adjuvant, a molecule to enhance or boost an immune response. Mm -hmm. Some companies are looking at maternal immunization: immunize the mom, and the pregnant mom passes antibody to her newborn to protect that newborn. So there are different approaches. There are many clinical trials going on around the world. So I wouldn't. To prejudge a year Mm -hmm. out which technology may prove itself. We just came out of a session about the mRNA revolution. It has been a revolution. It's a a new technology that is now proving itself, and we're very lucky to have it. It is saving millions, if not tens of millions, of lives around the world. And still, there's room for improvement. Those mRNA vaccines need freezing at negative 80 degrees Celsius, which are expensive freezer systems, not practical in some rural areas and in poor parts of the world. The vaccines are costly. The vaccines Vaccines require multiple doses, and it's not very practical to tell people you need three, four or five doses with multiple boosters. So there's more work to be done. And that's one area I worry about, because the willpower of the country, the investment of our government, our people in vaccines is starting to wane, to come down. People are tired of the pandemic. It's understandable. Mm -hmm. Some people are tired of hearing about vaccines. But other than clean drinking water, vaccines are the most beneficial biomedical intervention known to human beings. Much more important than antibiotics. And I'm an infectious disease doctor. Get consulted about antibiotics all the time. But if you had to choose, it's vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And it is hard to overstate the beneficial impact of vaccines on human health. You know, 50, 80 years ago, people were afraid to let their kid in the summer swim in the swimming pool. They're going to get polio. When was the last time anybody you knew was worried about getting polio? You know, there are diseases that I used to see when I was a young doctor, uh, meningitis with hemophilus in the emergency room that we don't see in the pediatric emergency room anymore because we have a good hemophilus vaccine. So vaccines are victims of their own success, and we quickly forget how beneficial they were. So those who are in a position of knowledge who are thinking, how do we prepare for the next pandemic? They feel the need for speed, to paraphrase uh, from Top Gun.
0: Do you think that the Operation Warp Speed and the COVID pandemic has changed what experts as yourself expect now for future vaccine development timelines.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think the Warp Speed vaccine initiative worked. The one aspect of it that I personally criticize is in my opinion, they should have told those companies, you're going to make a lot of money. We're going to guarantee that as an incentive to get into this space. However, you must provide your vaccines at affordable prices to resource poor parts of the world. That was not part of the deal. And that was not the mentality of those negotiating it, because I've spoken to people from the Warp Speed Initiative and they confirm that. But infectious diseases are a global phenomena. Viruses, bacteria, they don't care about your political affiliation. They don't care about national boundaries. They just spread and infect. And so it requires global solutions. So the one hole, in my opinion, and how to do it better next time is, yes, have a Warp Speed Vaccine Initiative type approach, but ensure that you have clauses that you can Uh, ensure that the companies provide vaccines at affordable cost to resource poor parts of the world so we don't have variants developing in other parts of the world that come uh, to the homeland.
0: So what do you think are some of the most important questions we should be asking right now? And what are your biggest questions?
1: Yeah, a, a major uh, question that I think isn't sufficiently addressed, and it came up in some of my commentary on the record serving uh, on on the Verpac committee, is that we need better knowledge of the correlates of protection for these mRNA vaccines. In other words, can we measure an immune parameter that predicts if that individual after their vaccine is protected or not? We measure the antibodies. The antibodies are probably relevant, but they're not the whole story. Uh, your body has cellular immunity, T-cells that are important to host defense against viruses. There was not enough information presented, to my view, at Verpac from the sponsors from Pfizer and Moderna about the T-cell responses to their vaccines. And uh, we would value a national effort to rigorously define the correlates of protection because that then allows immunobridging studies, studies where you power not necessarily on the prevention of clinical disease, but if you have a next-generation mRNA vaccine, you can measure the immune response. And if you know how that immune response correlates with how strong your protection is and how durable it is, that's a very practical approach. So we need better uh, research into how the mRNA vaccines protect. And our precision vaccines program at Boston Children's and Harvard is pursuing that now using a variety of technologies, including our ability to model the human immune system outside the body.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Levy.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: We'll be right back. At the tail end of the conference on Tuesday, Senator Tim Kaine took to the stage to discuss his advocacy for more funding to study long COVID, which he has had since getting COVID more than two years ago. His primary symptom is full-body paresthesia, the medical term for nerve tingling. We have about five minutes for your I have one more vote I got to raise back. <laughs> Kane gaggled with reporters after the panel and took a question from Axios about how funding for long COVID might be impacted if there's an end to the national health emergency. So
1: I still think that push is strong and I, you know, uh, Gene asked me if I was too optimistic and I might be, but I still think that there is a good likelihood that we're going to get an omnibus and that that omnibus is going to include long COVID
0: research funding for the NIH. It's a little bit about causes and cures, but also... On the treatment side of the kind that I gave. And I think you'll see an omnibus by year that will include some additional funding in this NIH research phase. There are eight days left before government funding runs out on December 16th. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Rees and Brooke Hayes are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Grace Scullion. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.